Happy Sabbath, everyone. How many people know that uh, there's just something about that name? Oh, that sounded like somebody. I said, how many people know that there is something about the name of Jesus? I'm so glad to be with you on this morning, this afternoon. And I don't know about you, I can say without pumping or priming that there is no place like this place. And I'm so glad that no matter what the week threw your way, you made it into the house of the Lord. And I joined with the psalmist in saying, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. And I was superbly glad when that house was the Glenville Seventh-day Adventist Church. We give glory for your pastor, uh, Dr. Myron Edmonds. Thank God for his mentorship and his uh, big brotherhood, if I can say that. He won't allow me to say he's a father in ministry. He'll tell me, boy, I'm too young to be your dad. So my big brother in ministry, who, as has been mentioned before, is ministering over in England. I had the opportunity to communicate with him on this week. And I just want to let you know that you have one of the most sought-after pastors and preachers in the world. I'm going to say that again. You have one of the most sought after pastors and preachers, not in Ohio, not in the U.S., but in the world. And in conversation time and again, amen, amen. He has let me know that it is his God-given assignment to shepherd and pastor this church. And you should know that you have a pastor who loves you who loves you dearly. And not every church can say that, but you can say that. You have a pastor who loves you deeply. And I spoke with Pastor Coxum as well. And he told me to give you a special message. He told me to tell you, Glenville, if the Lord never does another thing, you need to know that he's already done enough. And so Pastor Coxum sends his love as well. And I'm so glad that we have Pastor Moore with us. It was Pastor Moore who, during the early, early, early stages of my ministry, gave me the opportunity to come to this church during a New Year's Eve service. And along with Pastor Lyles, uh, give me, a young preacher, an opportunity to grow into his own armor. And I will never forget that. So thank you, Pastor Moore. It's good to see Ryan here, future Dr. Moore <laughs> in the house. And, and, and I'm so grateful again for the opportunity to stand behind this sacred desk and attempt to deliver a word from God. I'm so glad to have my beautiful fiance with me. Took that ride from Andrews University. Hey, listen, the Lord is good because he has outdone himself. I just want to let you know for those who are waiting, and the Bible is, is true when it says, he that finds a wife <laughs> finds a good thing. And um, I just want to give God praise <laughs> for being kind enough to allow me to, on February 8th of next year, so align myself with this beautiful young lady, uh, and I'm grateful for that. My friends, I believe that the Lord has a word for us. And I'm excited to see what he wants to do in this place. If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to John chapter 16? 
John's Gospel, the 16th chapter. And for those of you who know your pastor, you know that he is in love with technology. Uh, He is probably one of the most involved social media pastors in Adventism right now. And one of his favorite social media platforms, aside from Twitter and Facebook, is Instagram. And London is about six hours ahead of us right now, so he has preached for today. I'm not sure if he's preaching this evening, but I want us to send him a little e-love note, an electronic love video via Instagram. So I'm going to go ahead and pull out my Instagram page, and we're going to take a 15-second video letting him know how much we love him. So I'm going to start from this side of the church and make my way this way. And I want you with your biggest smile just to tell Pastor Edmonds and the family that you miss him and that you love him and tell him don't get too comfortable over there to come on home. Is that all right? So on the count of three, I want you to shout out your pastor. Ready? One, two, three. All right, all right. (laughs) Amen, amen, amen. Uh Uh-oh, wait a minute. Sometimes smartphones aren't that smart. We're going to do that one more time. Ready? All right, go ahead. Here you go, Dr. Edmonds. This is your church. Sending you a shout-out, some good love. Even the band. Here go the musicians. Amen. There we go. We'll make sure that's given to him later on this afternoon. John chapter 16. When you found John chapter 16, I want you to keep your finger there. Keep your finger there and turn to Revelation chapter 7. I really want to read a few verses in your hearing. Share what God has laid on my heart. John chapter 16 and then... Go to Revelation chapter 7. And when you have it, let me know by saying, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. John chapter 16 and then Revelation chapter 7. I'm going to read two verses from chapter 16 of John's gospel. And then I want to read two verses from Revelation chapter 7 also written by John. Beginning in John chapter 16, and I want to read verse 20, and then verse 33, I tell you the truth, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. Verse 33 of John chapter 16. I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And then two verses from John's Revelation of Jesus Christ, chapter 7, beginning at verse 13. Then one of the elders asked me, these in white robes, who are they? where they come from. 
I answered, sir, you know. And he said, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. For the next few moments, with your kind prayers, no doubt the help of the Holy Spirit, I want to preach the good news about bad news. The good news about bad news. Would you pray with me? And so now, God, we come, having cast our ballots, and the vote is unanimous. You are worthy to be praised. In this special moment, we come aside from the rush of life. We need to hear from you. So make some space for yourself. Feel free to move in any way you choose. May we in this moment hear your voice. But may we not only hear your voice, may we feel your presence. May we not only feel your presence, may we see your face. May we not only see your face, but may we be covered in your grace. And whatever you have to share with us, God, we indeed will be satisfied. And so now, less of I and none of me, more of you and all of thee. In Jesus' name, amen. The good news about bad news. I'm excited to say that in a little under 100 days, on the beautiful island of Bermuda, on a Sunday in Southampton Seventh-day Adventist Church, at around 2 o'clock, A wonderful service will begin, one that I have never had before and perhaps never will. It will be my wedding. And on my fiance's home island, I will, before God and many witnesses, declare my vows and sign them with I do, standing face to face with her. Bermuda is a lovely island, 26.2 square miles in length, one mile in width at its widest point, home to some 60,000 wonderful people, and I'm just glad that one of them had enough courage to stick with me for the rest of her life. For those of you who frequented the news channels recently, you know that a very powerful hurricane swept across the island. We, while with our computer screens lifted, watched to see what the news persons were saying about this hurricane. It happened on a Friday night into the early mornings of Saturday, and her family and our friends were texting us back and forth, asking us for updates because the power on the island had gone out. We would tell them what the meteorologists and the news persons were telling us, that the storm would begin around 9 p.m. on Friday, and would end around 3 a.m. on Saturday morning. Windows were boarded up, grocery stores, the water aisles were empty. People were ready for the storm, but they were not only ready for the storm, they were disheartened by the storm. The storm 
was bad news. Storm was bad news because of the size of the island. If the storm's intensity was too great, it could do major damage to this small island. The storm was, was bad news. And just as the meteorologists had forecast, the storm did begin on that Friday night around 9 o'clock. It went through the night into the early morning hours, and then it ceased, just as they had said. After a couple of days went by, they began to recap exactly what happened during the storm. Most persons who were there on the island said for the space of about an hour and a half, there was an eerie silence, one that caused them to be a little afraid because they were awaiting the storm to hit. And the storm did come, and it was powerful, but a couple of days after the storm, they told us what really happened. They said that eerie silence meant that the eye of the storm was passing over the island and that that was the good news to the bad news, that the storm came, but the eye passed over the island. They said the good thing about that is, is it prevented the weight of the storm from traveling right over the island so that all that the island really did experience was the back end of the hurricane. I want to let you know first before I get into the text that sometimes God has a way of sending the storm but still managing the storm so that although you have to receive bad news, there's good news packaged with it. So not only did they say that the good thing about the storm coming was that it came at such an angle that the eye was able to pass over the island, but they said prior to the storm's commencement, there was what they called a pre-storm a pre-storm. This storm happened on a Friday, but Monday of that same week prior to this storm, there was an unforeseen storm that took place. No one was prepared for it. No one knew it was coming. It caused some electrical lines to fall down. It did a little bit of damage, but no one had the opportunity to be prepared for it. Well, after the second storm came, the news persons got back onto the news and the meteorologist said that that pre-storm was necessary to prevent the power of the storm that was really heavy. And I stopped and scratched my head and I said, hmm, maybe there's something powerful in this happening. That sometimes God allows unannounced storms to come so that it prevents the later storms from being as heavy as they could be. Because had there been no pre-storm, the people would have never thought to be ready for the storm they knew was coming. So as I looked at this, I said, well, if there can be good news for literal storms in this life, the fact that sometimes the storms have a way of passing over us so that the weight of the storm does not hit us, and that sometimes pre-storms take place so that when the real storm comes, it has already been weakened of most of its power, then maybe, just maybe, there can be some spiritual significance about storms. Maybe, just maybe, we can draw some lessons from this storm metaphor that can be applied to our own life. I believe Jesus might have had a storm in mind when he said to his disciples, in this life, you will have trouble. Some translations say you will have tribulation, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. During Jesus's earthly ministry, he operated by a threefold focus. He taught, he healed, and he preached. And oh, what a mighty preacher Jesus was. And out of all the great preachers that the world has ever seen, I want to submit that no preacher has ever preached like Jesus. He had a way of making deep and complex truths very simple. 
Sometimes he would lift your eyes into the sky and point at the flying sparrow and say, do you see this sparrow and how it is dressed? You see how it does not work for its food, but yet it does not go hungry one night. And if the father in heaven can provide for this sparrow, then surely, oh, surely he can provide for you. Then he would take your eyes from the blue skies down to the fluttered ground. And he would look, tell you, look at that flower. And he says, look at this flower, how it's dressed and how it's all beautiful. I tell you that Solomon in all of his glory was not dressed as beautifully as this flower. He was an awesome preacher. Because he obeyed the laws of homiletics, he did not rush to his climax too swiftly. He had a way of starting low and building higher, and then he would strike fire, and then he would retire. Jesus was an awesome preacher, not only because of what he said and how he said it, because he, but because he is the only preacher in all of history to effectively and perfectly live everything that he preached. Now, we try to align our lives with the principles of God's word, but we fall short every now and then. But Jesus is the best preacher because on every spot, he was perfect in all that he presented. There was a harmonious line connected, that which he proclaimed and that which he practiced. Not only did he tell us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us and be kind to those who insult us, he actually died for his enemies, died for those who insulted him, and died for those who wrongfully use him. He is the only preacher who perfectly modeled everything that he preached. But not only was he a perfect preacher, he was a revolutionary healer. He had ways of healing people in ways that made doctors scratch their heads. When blind people would come to him, he would spit on the ground and make spittle out of the mud, put it on his eyes, tell a man to go wash in the pool of Siloam, and the blind came back seeing. On one occasion, a paralytic was lowered through the roof of someone's house, and all Jesus did was tell the man to get up and walk, and this man received healing back into his legs. He had a way of healing people with just one word. He was a revolutionary healer. But not only was he a revolutionary healer and a perfect preacher, but he was an awesome teacher. In fact, if Jesus were to teach in our schools today, I believe on an annual basis, he would get the Teacher of the Year Award because he would teach in ways that even children could understand what he was saying. And so throughout his ministry, his disciples had the opportunity to hear him preach to see him teach and to witness him heal. They saw him call demons out of people. They, they saw him raise Lazarus back to life again. They were there when he turned the water into wine. They met him when he was speaking to that woman at the well. They had seen him open blind eyes and loose dumb tongues. They had seen him restore feeling back to people's legs. They had seen him lift that woman who was bent over for 18 years. They had witnessed him when power came out of the hem of his garment and a woman who for 12 years had had this issue of blood went away healed they had seen him go into Jairus's house and bring his daughter back to life for three and a half long years they had heard him preach powerful messages they had seen him teach awesome lessons and they had seen him heal the worst of people and now and now his life on earth was about to end Beginning at around John chapter 13, most scholars say begins what they call Jesus's final discourse. It was common practice for the rabbis of that day to allow certain disciples to follow them for about three to four years. And before they would move on to a new school of disciples or before they would go on to another city or before their life's end would come, they would give a final discourse, parting words, if you will, a few words before I leave you. 
So Jesus spending these few moments with his disciples was not uncommon practice. No, it was what Jesus said in these few words that was uncommon. The fact that he pulled them aside to give them a few final words. Every disciple, every rabbi would do that. Every teacher would do that. But it was what Jesus said that was uncommon. This is what grabbed my attention in my devotion in this passage. Not the fact that he spent a few final moments with them, but it was what he said. Most rabbis, most teachers who had a few disciples following them prior to that exit would give them wonderful news. He would tell all of his disciples about the beauties of their future and how they had bright futures ahead of him. He would tell them that their futures was full of promise and potential and that if you would just remember all that I told you, you would have not to worry about anything. Most masters or rabbis, before they would leave their disciples, would tell their disciples that I have already arranged for you to take over when I leave. I've created space at the local synagogue so that you all will not have to work your way up the ladder. But because you've actually been taught by me, you are actually going to have a pretty promoted height, excuse me, a pretty promoted position from which to teach. They would fill their disciples' ears and heads with good news. But when Jesus commenced his final discourse, all that it seems he was telling his disciples was bad news. When he started his final discourse, he told them that you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. Now, I don't know about you, my brothers and my sisters, but that's bad news. He paints a very sad picture. If you look in the original language, the picture that he's painting is a picture of the world engaging in a waltz-like dance while his disciples are in a pit of fruit pressing and pressing so that the oil can come out. What he says to them, he says, while you're weeping and mourning, it will look like the world is dancing. And doesn't it seem like we're in that stage right now in earth's history? That it seems like all is going bad for the Christian community. That there can be no hope anymore, no reason to hold on to faith because the world is waltzing and the world is dancing and the world is being promoted. And I hear Jeremiah and David say, Lord, how long will the wicked prosper while the righteous suffer endlessly? This is the bad news that Jesus told his disciples just before he was about to leave them. That while you are weeping and while you are mourning, it will seem like the world is dancing. And I don't know about you, my brothers and my sisters, but in my short life, I've had to scratch my head sometimes. When I saw my grandmother die from cancer, who was a deaconess in the church. She was a part of the senior choir. She never said a bad word to anyone in all of her life. And yet somehow she died from cancer. But the person who smoked all of their life and drunk all of their life, who cursed to everyone who walked by, somehow lived to see an old age. Why does it seem like the world dances while God's people mourn? You've experienced it, haven't you, where you showed up to work on a day-to-day basis, on time, dressed in your uniform, you smiled at your employer, you were nice to people as they came back in, but when it's time for the cuts to come, you got laid off, you got demoted, you got fired, when it seemed like the young lady who was always late coming into work, never had a kind word to say to anybody, she stole more than she earned, she was the one who was promoted, it seemed like the world was dancing while God's people were mourning. And I want to say that sometimes God does allow the world to dance while we mourn, but the good news about the bad news is that weeping does not last always. Oh yes, sometimes we have to weep 
And sometimes we have to mourn. And sometimes we will feel. And sometimes we will ache. Yes, the truth about the Christian experience is that it does come with blue skies. And it does come with white clouds. But every now and then, God allows those white clouds to become filled with water. And those white clouds become dark clouds. And those blue skies become overcast. And sometimes he does allow our bodies to be racked with pain. And sometimes he does allow our children to be prematurely put to the grave. And sometimes God does allow bad news to come, but he does not allow bad news to last always. And let me just pause to give God glory that although he does allow the storm to come, for every storm's beginning, there is a storm's ending. For every dark midnight, there is a beautiful sunrise. For everything that God permits, he does always allow an end to come. He tells his disciples, I must tell you before I leave that you're going to weep and that you're going to mourn. And some of you will be persecuted for my name's sake. You will be punished because of your obedience. You will receive an undue reward for the things that I've told you to do. But if you just hang in there, I'm telling you that your weeping will be turned to joy. Now, I always thought that what he meant by this is that somehow he would lift us up from a position of pain and move us to a new position of joy. But if you study it carefully, what he's saying is the things that I allow to come into your life that will bring you pain, those very things, if you hang with me, I will transform them into things that will bring you joy. How can I paint it better? God says, if I give you this phone, And this phone upon your reception of it is painful. When I now transition you to a new place of joy, I'm not going to remove this phone from your hand and give you now a phone of joy. No, I'm going to take this phone of pain and transform it into a phone of joy. The reason why that is true is because God has a way of, in the midst of the bad news, transforming our perspective And that which we formerly saw as painful, now he allows us to see as joyful. You remember Joseph, don't you? The one who at the tender age of 17 was sold ruthlessly by his brothers into slavery. He was brutally abused in the hands of Mrs. Potiphar's wife, falsely accused. He was put for years into prison, but then God lifted him up. And after years passed, when he was face to face with his brothers, and they were afraid after the passing of their father, that he would now exact revenge on them for all that he had done, he was able in Genesis chapter 50 verses 19 and 20 to look them into the eye and say, all that you meant for my evil, I now know that God has meant for my purpose to save much people alive today. The reason why he was able to look at his place of pain as his place of joy is because God had transformed his perspective so that that which he formerly saw as painful, he was now able to see as joyful. He says to his disciples, you will weep and mourn. And one of the myths of the Christian experience is that it's devoid of pain. I used to think that the longer you live in obedience to Christ, the better life is supposed to come. I used to think that A plus B equals C. That if I return a faithful tithe, if I come to church on Sabbath on a regular basis, if I get a little good and I come to prayer meeting every week, if I get a little good and I come to early morning prayer service, that surely a a hedge of immunity will be placed around me. And that would keep away all bad things from coming my way. But I've lived long enough to know that sometimes bad news comes because you're a Christian. Sometimes God permits things to come to shape our characters, to refine our faith, to deepen our trust, 
to authenticate our praise so that no longer is it just routine for me to stand up in the house of God and say, I will bless the Lord at all times. He says, oh yeah, well, I'm going to allow some storms to come your way, some bad things to take place. Let me put it like this. I remember Pastor Moore when the announcement took place that he had been in that very difficult accident. And we went to Trey's room at Pine Forge and asked Trey, was he okay? We went and found Ryan and asked Ryan if he were okay. A few years passed and we were in Crackerboro on the way back down to, to Oakwood University. And I said, Pastor Moore, were you ever upset with God that he allowed you a man of God, one who was committed to the people of God and the work of God? You invested money by putting your children in Christian education. Were you ever upset with God that he will allow such a horrible accident to happen to you? And his words to me were no, because now I have a more authentic praise. Before I said things just out of memory, but now I can say because of what I've been through that the weapon may be formed. I feel it right now, but it will not prosper. God may allow weeping to endure for the night, but joy will come in the morning. Sometimes God allows things to come our way so that we don't need the help of a praise team and we don't need the choir to pump and lift us up. But because of what God has done to me and for me, because he has changed my perspective, now I can say, come hell or high water, the name of the Lord be praised. And I believe you and I have experienced it, haven't you, where God has permitted us to grieve and to mourn, but he has somehow miraculously transformed that grief into joy. He says, just like a woman who after nine months has carried a baby in her womb, she's had mourning sickness, strange cravings, She's elbowed her husband in the middle of the night to tell him to go down to churches and get me a 12-piece and two biscuits. Back pains. Had to stop working. Oh, I'm sorry. Y'all don't eat chicken around here. My bad. I'm sorry. She woke him up and told him to go make her a grilled sandwich and put some postum on the side. But then after the, the time of caring was over, it was time to now go to the hospital and she was in labor for long hours. And the doctor, for whatever reason, would not give her any pain medicines. But something happened that after that baby came forth and the doctor laid the baby on her chest, somehow the memory of her pain went away. Because she now sees that the purpose of that pain was to produce something beautiful. He says, while you are with child, metaphorically speaking, you will have pain. But once what I have put inside of you comes forth, you will be able to forget the pain and experience the joy. He says, I'm going to transform it. But then right before he ends his discourse, he says something that causes me to scratch my head. He says, I've told you all these things, fellas. I've told you that you would experience pain. I've told you that that pain would be transformed into joy if you allow it to take its perfect course. But I've told you all these things really so that in me you might have peace. And he tells them that in this life, Tizzle, you will have tribulation. You will have tribulation. Let that sink into the person who is under the false assumption that the more good things you do, the less bad things will come towards you. I have experienced that sense of entitlement, that inner frustration, that posture of anger towards God, 
When you point your finger at God because of what he has permitted, you point your finger at God because of what he has allowed. You sometimes scratch your head and you say, God, did you go to sleep on my life? Did you somehow forget that I was your child? Did you somehow miss what I did for you all of these years? How could you allow this to happen to my family? How could you allow this to happen to me? And God, like a trumpet peal from glory, says, well, who would you suggest in your place? Who would you want to go in your steed? God, sometimes you were going through your Rolodex or you were scrolling through your divine computer. And when you came to my name, God, I think you might have stopped too soon or, or you came too late. God, are you sure it was my family who was supposed to have the house foreclosed? Are you sure it was my mother who was supposed to get sick? Are you sure it was my child who was supposed to be put into prison? God, are you sure you allowed the pain to come to the right address? Have you been there? Have you had those times of questions where you couldn't sleep and you had to rock side to side on your bed's edge and you had to, in confusion, wrestle with God because what you have professed does not seem to make sense. The, 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 the content of your experience does not seem to align. I thought, God in heaven, that, that the Christian experience was supposed to only be filled with joy, was to only supposed to be filled with promotion. I thought that when I professed your name, when I was baptized into the church, when I started to do things the right way, God, it seemed like I had things going better when I was out of your will. It seemed like money was in my pocket when I was out of your will. It seemed like the good things were happening to me when I was intentionally out of your will. But the moment I chose to align myself with God's will, it seemed like all hell broke loose. And it's interesting, he says, yeah, that's right. You're right. Because in this life, you will have trouble. It's almost like, it's almost like the student at the beginning of the semester. The first couple of days of class, the teacher will hand out what we call a syllabus. Hands it out to every student in the class. And we get that syllabus, and what it does is, is it tells us what we need to do to get an A in the course. And maybe you, like my teachers, would often tease the students. They would say, right now, everybody has an A. Everybody has an A. But in order to keep an A, you have to turn in these assignments on these dates with all the elements included. If you look closely, students, about five weeks from now, there's going to be a quiz. That quiz will test you on all of the homework assignments and all the lectures. A few weeks after that, you're going to have a midterm examination. And I'm going to be able to test if you have really accepted and if you've really internalized all of the things that I've taught so far. And then at the end of the semester, there will be a comprehensive examination. And that will test you on all of the tools, on all of the skills, on all of the principles, and on all of the concepts that I have struck, instructed you on in class. And sure enough, Everyone says, you know what? I'm going to be ready when that test comes. I'm going to go to sleep at night. I'm going to wake up early in the morning, turn my assignments in early and on time. And when the test comes, I'm going to be ready. But oh, somehow when those five, six, seven weeks pass 
and we're in the week of the midterm. Sleep has somehow not been your friend. All of a sudden, you are anxious. And that which you said you were prepared for, you were not prepared for. And you get to the day of the midterm and you are praying, asking God for grace and for mercy. To somehow fill your mind with that which you have not studied. <laughs> and sometimes he does have favor. But when I was thinking about this syllabus illustration, I said, man, what's deep about this thing is that the tests are pre-announced. It would be very unkind of the teacher to give tests without telling us that they're coming. And so the good thing that about God is, he says, listen, before bad news comes, let me go ahead and tell you that bad news will come. It's almost like he gives us a syllabus for life to let us know that at some point in time during your Christian experience, you can't expect to be tested. But the only difference is between what the teachers do and what God does is our tests don't always come with a date. God does not always promise us that on November 1st, 2014, you're going to have a spiritual test. But he does tell us in advance that it is going to come. But the good thing about God's test is this. They always come prepackaged with peace. Oh, you got to hear this thing this morning. God never sends a test unless it is prepackaged with peace. A few chapters before this in John 14, he told them that I'm leaving, but my peace I leave with you. The kind of peace I give you, I do not give as the world gives. I give a different kind of peace. Let me take you back to Bermuda again. On the day that I proposed to my fiance, June 20th, 2014, I proposed on Long Bay Beachside. Oh, man, if you ever get to go, go there. Pink Sands, it's a beautiful place. Not too far off of that shore, there is a rock, a boulder almost, that is protruding from the ocean. It's one of my favorite rocks. Anytime I go there, I make sure to take a walk along that beach and look at that rock. And what I love about this rock is not just the fact that it's a rock. That's not too impressive. But what I love about the rock is that what we can see of the rock is something that has endured storm after storm after storm. The waves have beat it on every side. And the rainwaters have come and fallen on it. And yet that rock still stands, not because it has been prevented from experiencing the waves, not because it has been, listen to me, not because it has been prevented from going through the storm, but it stands because in spite of the waves and it stands because in spite of the storms and it stands because in spite of the storms that it's been through, it stands because beneath what we can see. It is rooted and founded on something deeper so that all that we see is what meets the eye. But there is an undergirding beyond what we can see that permits it to weather the storm. And that's the kind of peace that God gives us. God gives us that kind of peace that weighs us deep down beyond what people can see. So that when they know what we're going through, they say, how are you able to still smile like you smile? How can you still say happy Sabbath like you say? How can you still be kind to people like you? And you can say, because beyond what you can see, God has weighed me down in faith. So that when the storms come and when the waves are hitting, all you see is my top half. But there's a bottom half beyond what you can see that's keeping me anchored. Prepackaged with peace. It's interesting, the kind of trouble that Jesus says will come. It's painted by this Greek word called the leapsis. 
And it's the picture of a person pressing olives or pressing grapes together so that the juices of that grape or the oil of the olive can come out. And he says, in this life, you're going to be pressed on every side. In this life, you're going to be pressed without an announcement that you're about to enter a pressing season. And in this life, you're going to be pressed without an announcement of when that pressing time will end. In this life, you're going to be pressed without knowing the purpose for the pressing. In this life, you're going to be pressed and it's going to cause you to scratch your head. And I believe I have a sneaky suspicion that maybe someone right now is in that pressing season. It's caused your head to ache. And it's caused your knees to ache. It's caused your back to ache. It's caused your heart to ache. That pressing that God has permitted, that pressing that God has prescribed, that pressing that seems to have no explanation to it, that pressing that nobody can make sense of. But he says, I never allow pressing without prepackaging it with peace. He says, if you let me hang in there with you, I will explain the pressing. I'll make sense of the pressing. I'll be with you in the midst of the pressing just as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. When they're pressing, put them into the fiery furnace. They found out that the same one who permitted them to enter the fire was the same one who was with them in the fire. Just ask Daniel who was permitted to be pressed so much that it put him in the lion's den. And he found out that the same one who allowed him to enter the lion's den was the same one who had power to shut the lion's mouth. Just ask Jesus who was pressed to the point of death. And he will tell you that even if you have to die, there's a resurrection waiting for you. On the other side, my brothers and my sisters, bad news does happen. But the good news is God told us it would come. The good news is he prepackages it with peace. And finally, the good news about bad news is this. We have a victor in Jesus. He says, I've told you these things in advance that number two, you might have peace in this life. You will have trouble, but take heart for I have overcome the world. Now we know the text too well. This does not bother us. How could Jesus say he's overcome the world when he hadn't been to the cross yet? How could he already say that I've overcome the world when he hadn't died yet? How could he say I've overcome the world when he hadn't been buried yet? How could he say I've overcome the world when he hadn't been raised yet? Jesus was so convinced of the effectiveness of his victory that he was able, even before he went to the cross, to encourage his disciples by saying, listen, when the troubles of life come, don't worry, because I've already overcome the world in which your trouble will take place. Oh, let's look at it like this. Let's say this podium represents the collective troubles that we will all experience in this world. And this sanctuary represents the world in which the trouble takes place. Well, up outside of this world is a God who's already become victorious over the world. So he says, not only do I have victory over the trouble that I will allow in your life, but I already have victory over the world in which the trouble will take place. So that when you're going through, you can lean and relax on the fact that my God has already overcome whatever it is he's allowed in my life. It stands to reason then that God won't permit it if he's not already been victorious over it. And so now, as I'm looking at this thing, 
I said, hmm, John. John says that Jesus says we're going to have trouble. Have we seen this word trouble, this word tribulation anywhere else? Just a brief moment of touching him out of your way. You will know that John writes at least five books of the Bible. He writes his gospel, John. He writes 1st John, he writes 2nd John, and he writes 3rd John, and he also writes the book of Revelation. Most biblical scholars suggest that the first book that John wrote was actually the book of Revelation. And so in chapter 7, which we read at the beginning, when he was envisioned seeing these people dressed in white robes, and he says, hey man, who are these people? John says, hey bro, you know this is you, you're leading me around. He says, these are the people who have come out of great tribulation. They have washed their robes white in the blood of the Lamb. That same word tribulation in chapter 7 is the same word he uses here in John chapter 16. So I just believe that John was not crying while writing this piece of bad news, but he was smiling when he wrote this because he had already seen the revelation. He says, yes, Jesus said you're going to have tribulation, but if you hang with him, I've already seen the vision that those who align themselves with Jesus will one day stand before him as those who have not only been in tribulation, but they have overcome tribulation. So he's writing this and he says, hey, listen, take heart because a better day is coming. You may have to cry right now. You may have to burden right now. You may have to experience pain right now. But a day is coming where you will be dressed in a white robe, a part of that numberless throng who has not only been through tribulation, but who has overcome tribulation. Now, I don't know about you, my brothers and my sisters, but that's good news today. To know that, yes, bad news does come. And yes, bad news is not always explained. But bad news does not last always. I wish I could tell you that this life on this earth ends with a beautiful picture. And that while on this earth, you and I would somehow come out of everything. But here is the gospel truth. Sometimes bad news doesn't end until Christ comes. Sometimes God will allow us to experience that thing for the rest of our lives. But he says, if you align yourself with me. I promise that there will be a time where this tribulation will be permanently and eternally transformed. And with that numberless throng, you will be able to be what John saw. These are they who have come out of bad news. These are they that I've permitted to experience it. I allowed it to come their way, but they have now come out. They've washed their robes white in the blood of the lamb. And now, And now they stand with me forever. When I entered the seminary in the fall of 2012, I must confess that I entered unlike many of my colleagues might have entered. I did not enter the seminary with the best of attitudes. I actually entered the seminary with a very cancerous, complaining spirit. Because I was at a point in time in my spiritual life where I was challenged with now studying about a God that I was not sure really cared about me. And it's nothing like studying 
about God. Researching about God. Listening to lecture after lecture about God. When you're really not sure about him in the first place. Hear me now. There's nothing more conflicting than bearing the name pastor. Nothing more conflicting than bearing the name Christian. Then when you're not sure if God really cares. Without boring you with the details, I had received some bad news. The kind of bad news that, that, that does not just cause you to cry one tear, complain a little bit. But I'm talking about the bad news, Elder Moore, that led me to the place where I said time and again, you know what? Close my Bible. There's no point in preaching about you, God. There's no reason in singing about you anymore. Five years in the Oakwood University Aeolians, two years in the Pine Forge Choir. I've sung about you. I've preached about you. I've taught Sabbath school. No, 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 God. You have dropped the ball on this one. I am through. I had it all planned out. God, if you can do you, then I can do me. Can I talk to you? God, if you can allow this bad news to take place, then you can read it for yourself. I'm out of here. I just got into a relationship with Kyla. And the nature of this news had me at a place where I was going to say to her, listen, you're a lovely young lady. I am glad that God has allowed us to get together. But I don't know about him no more. You don't follow me. You stick with him. But I've got to do my own thing. For a year and a half of my seminary journey, I'm writing papers. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. I'm reading books that are painting God out to be this awesome being. One who loves us. One who cares. I'm rehearsing the cliches that I've learned in this life. God is good all the time. All the time, God is good. And I'm saying, no, no, no. That's not true. God isn't being good right now. No weapon formed against you shall prosper. I said, no, that's not true. Because this one's winning right now. God will never put more on you than you can bear. No, no, no. I'm wrestling back and forth. I've got my hand on the doorknob. And I'm saying, God, if you don't do something, I'm out of here. I'm sponsored by a Seventh-day Adventist conference to get this degree. But I'm going to call them right now and say, listen, I thank you for investing in my academic journey. I hope I haven't wasted your time or funds, whatever it has. I'll work to pay it off. But, but, but. There's been a change in the journey. All of my years of Christian education, valedictorian from high school, cum laude, all that, I said, what does it mean? I was at a place where the bad news had wrapped its icy fingers around my faith and was suffocating me of any promise in the future. 
It looked like the world was dancing while I was grieving and mourning. I carried it inside for my entire first year. And then gotten to the place where the inner frustration would not permit me to go forward. I told my mother, I said, Mom, I'm going to do one thing. I'm going to go to counseling, and if this does not help, I'm out of here. I said, I'll go. I'll do my thing. Who knows? Maybe God, in his providence, will somehow bring me back. But this is it. And she, with tears in her eyes, time and again on the phone, would say, Rich, don't do it. Think of the lives that God has used you to bless. He says, I said, I said, Ma, that's the point. How could God use me like he has? How could God seduce me like this? Before I shaped you in your mother's womb, I knew you. I purposed. How could he say this to me and then allow this? At this point, I, I, I did not know what God was up to. I didn't know that, 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 that God was, was actually allowing the bad news to come for a reason. I started counseling, talked back and forth with them, poured out my heart. I said, I'm upset, I'm angry, I'm frustrated. I want to leave. And this is what this counselor said to me. Totally changed. I told you, God will turn the grief into joy. Listen to me. He said this. He said, Rich, I know you're going through. But think of how many lives will never be blessed through you if you give up now. He says, he says think, of the, think of the messages that will forever be unproclaimed if you walk out of the door now. He said, Rich, tell me this. Do you plan to have kids one day? He said, yeah, I plan to have kids one day. He says, Think of the faith that you will not be able to hand on to them if you walk out of the door now. I stepped back. I said, okay, God, what are you doing? What are you, what are you saying? And God began to speak to me on a very deep and personal level. And this is the message he wants for somebody today. He said, Rich, listen. I allow pain for one of two reasons. I allow bad news for one of two reasons. He says, number one, I permit it sometimes to correct false pictures that you have of me. See, prior to this, I've been preaching, teaching, singing, ministering, witnessing, and all along, I had a faulty picture of God. See, I thought that God became more entitled to me the more I allowed him to use me. I thought that the more I find myself in his will, that the more he's indebted to me. God said, I had to allow this to correct that picture. He says, I will never be indebted to you. I will never be entitled to you. It will always be your privilege to be used by me. So the reason I had to allow you to go through this to let you know that you are never outside 
of my jurisdiction to permit anything to happen to your life, to correct a faulty picture. So number one, and I'm in appeal time now, maybe God is allowing what he's allowing in your life to correct a false picture that you have of him. He says, I'm correcting a picture. I'm letting you see me as I really am. Prior to this, I allowed you to have that picture, but it it wasn't perfect. I'm correcting a picture that I have of you. Sometimes I'm going to let the month pass and the bill won't be paid. I'm correcting the picture that you have of me. But number two, not only do I allow pain, Rich, to correct the faulty picture that you have of me, sometimes I allow, allow pain so that from here on out, when you speak on my behalf, whether it's from this desk when you're preaching, whether you're sharing your faith with a coworker, with a family member, I allow pain so that you will not only operate from a book knowledge of me. You will not only be able to now draw passages of scripture and quote them, but I'm now making your life a book. And you can now draw from the vaults of your experience. Hey, listen, Glenville, Glenville. I'm standing, if I were standing before you sharing this message two years ago, it would have been purely academic. I would have done my research. I would have structured it right. I would have had the right words. And I would have told you, God can turn your bad news into good news. And I'm sure we would have had a great time. But I would have left here having given a good sermon. But now I'm here to tell you from my life. That there is good news about bad news. That the God we serve is able to change grieving to joy. I'm here to tell you on the laurels of my own experience with God that we can overcome any kind of tribulation that comes our way. So you name it. You call it. You have it in your mind. The bad things that you're saying, God, what is this? He's either trying to correct a picture of himself in your mind. Or he's trying to authenticate your witness. Authenticate your testimony. So that no longer is it just book knowledge. No longer do you run out of these doors with the deep and good and true things that Pastor Edmonds gives you. You say, hey, listen, this is what my pastor said, but but." Don't just depend on that. Let me tell you what I know for myself. Let me tell you what I've learned as God has taken me through life on my own. I don't need Pastor Martin to tell me this. I know on my own that God is good all the time. No matter what comes, all things do work together for the good of them who love the Lord and are the called according to his purpose. So I have a couple questions for you. Who is it in the room right now who's going through some bad news? You've been experiencing some pain. And you've learned today, man, maybe God has permitted it. Maybe God has prescribed this for me. Maybe God has allowed this to happen. What what kind of pain is it? Is it physical? it physical? Is it emotional? Is it spiritual? Maybe you've just recently received that text message this week. You sit in your car, said, man, it's your bad news. 
Maybe you received an email or a phone call. Maybe you were at a doctor's visit. I don't know. Whatever it was, it was, it was bad news. Perhaps some of us have been wrestling with it, like me, for a number of years. And it's not until this moment that you say, wait, wait, wait. Could it be that God has allowed this bad news? If that's you, I want to let you know, it came prepackaged with peace. And if God has allowed this bad news to come your way, then I have on the authority of scripture the right to tell you that he will give peace that passes understanding. He will give peace that makes you say, I don't know how I'm still making it. Because that which he has permitted should have made me lose my mind. I don't know how there's still a song on my heart. I don't know how there's still an ability to rehearse the promises of God. Because the bad news that he allowed to come should have taken me out. But God's word says, I've told you these things. So that in me you might have You might have peace. As I was driving up here, rehearsing the message, allowing God to speak and say anything that he wanted to say, I asked, I said, God, you know, is there any specific appeal that you want to be made? There are default appeals that we preachers can go to sometimes. But God told me to make a very specific appeal. And it may not be for everybody, but I know if it's for that somebody, then God is behind this. And it may sound cliche, but I I really want you to hear the depth of what I'm suggesting. The kind of peace that God has to offer is the kind of peace that should alter the way you live life. It's not a peace that's just, you know, clap my hands, happy, I'm smiling. No, it's the kind of peace that is not dependent upon the ending of a storm or the absence of trial. But it's the kind of peace that even in the midst of no answers, no sign of when it's going to end, I don't know the reason for it, but I trust God. That's the kind of peace that God wants to give. And so this is the appeal he told me to ask. Who wants that kind of peace? If you want that life-altering, perspective-changing, life-rooting, faith-rooting peace, I want you to come forward, and I'm going to ask God to give you that peace. I'm talking about the peace that Jesus gives which is drastically different than the kind that the world gives. See, the world will give you a lot of money and say, now be at peace. But you and I know today that there are billionaires who don't have peace.